0: I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel as we now turn the page and, and come into a, a new chapter in this Gospel, and Lord willing, we'll make it through one or two more before we see the new year. It is a wonderful opportunity we have to walk through God's Word and to sing His praises and to, to consider what we just sang, that Jesus indeed does save. Have you just stopped and considered lately what that means? I mean, what it means that he saved you and that he saved me. I was thinking on this just yesterday, I got a a message from a friend I hadn't talked to in years, who a mutual friend of ours is the one who shared the gospel with me, and, and just thinking about how 32 years ago, this month, God saved me. There was a witness of a campus missionary named Shane who now lives in Texas, and so I texted him yesterday and just thanked him for being used by God, for sharing the gospel with me, to encourage him that that his impact on me 32 years ago resonates in a city that he's never been to and likely will never be in, and that is the work of the gospel, that God is in the business of saving. He has saved you, and he has saved me, and there are others that he will save, and in his economy, in his grand scheme of things, in his sovereignty, of all the ways he could go about that saving work, uh, he has called you and I to be a part of it. And it is a wonderful thing, it is a humbling thing. And we are reminded of that as we turn the page now to Luke chapter 10. If you've been with us, you know that uh, we have just come off of a chapter where Luke has recounted for us the, the high and costly call of following Jesus. Uh, That this is not a casual call, that this is not an an auxiliary component of our life, that uh, Jesus demands our all. He demands to be first. And we need to be on guard against good things in our life, becoming first things in our life, because only Christ can be first in our life if he will indeed be Lord. And coming off that call then, he has uh, empowered disciples to go out into the world to share the gospel. And what we see in today's passage is the empowering, the setting aside of 72 who will now go out and share the gospel. And as we consider their call, uh, we need to consider our own call and what the Lord is calling us to do today. So We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. And I want to invite you, if you're able to, to stand out of reverence for God's word as we consider what he has to say to us today through his inspired, infallible word, recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a doctor named Luke, who writes this. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter, or Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who has ears, or excuse me, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You would pray with me. Father, it is a glorious truth that Jesus saves. And it is a glorious thing to respond to that truth in faith and repentance. But it is woeful to reject that truth. And we see the soberness of that woe before us today. So, Father, I do pray, if there is any among us today who is yet to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And, Lord, for those who have responded rightly in faith and repentance, I pray for us, Lord, that you might burden us for those who have not, and that you might empower us to be a gospel witness to them, and that you might encourage us through their response faithfully to the gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago, I came across a news article that described a rather unique case that had come before the Massachusetts State Supreme Court it was a a sad situation. A a young man had died through an accidental drowning. As the uh, case unfolded and evidence was presented, it was shown that this uh, young man had gone to a lake with a group of his friends, and while walking out on a dock, his feet had become entangled in a rope. He had tripped over that rope, fallen into the water, and eventually he had drowned because not only uh, did he not know how to swim, he was entangled in this rope. As evidence was presented, it was shown that the friends who were with him uh, attempted to rescue him, but sadly, uh, by the time that he they heard his pleas for help and his cries as he was able to make it to the surface of the water, they were so far away that when they ran and got to him and dove in the water, it was too late. But the reason that this was being presented before a state Supreme Court was because there was someone present who could have saved this young man's life. Evidence was presented against another young man who happened to be on the very dock that the deceased had fallen off of. He was sitting in a chair and sunbathing when this happened and as evidence was presented, it was shown conclusively that not only did he hear this man's cries, and not only was he well within the distance to do something help save him he was also an expert swimmer he had every opportunity to save this man's life and yet he chose not to he ignored his cries and his pleas and as a result this other man died the case was presented arguments were made and in the end the family of the deceased who brought this case to trial they lost the case And they lost for this reason. The court ruled that the young man on the dock had no legal responsibility to try to save the other man's life. He had instead, quote, the right to choose for himself whether or not he would involve himself in a dying man's distress. As I read that article, I could not help but think that that is a a testimony of our culture today. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for so many in our world now has changed to look out for yourself. (laughs) Look out for, number one, we are a self-obsessed and a selfish people. And as a result, so often we, we ignore opportunities to help the helpless, to help the suffering, and in this case, to help those who are in grave peril, because we're so busy looking out for ourself and our own wants and interests and our own needs. And it is into this selfishness and this self-consumption that the gospel of Jesus comes to us and really wrecks us. Because Jesus calls us to live a very different way. And we've seen that in recent passages here in Luke's gospel. We have seen clearly How Luke has presented to us the call of Christ to abandon self, to die to self, and to be made alive to Christ. Not to look out for ourselves first, but really to put ourselves last, that we might reach others with the gospel of Jesus. And yet, this is a challenge for us to do. It was certainly a challenge for these early followers of Christ, as we have seen in recent verses. As Jesus is literally on his way to Jerusalem and explaining to his disciples, those who walk closest with him, that he's going to be handed over to his enemies, that they are going to arrest him and try him and kill him. He'll be crucified. As he's saying these very things, consider what it is the disciples are arguing about. Who's number one? <laughs> this selfishness, this self consumption it's at our core and we see it exposed among them and if we look closely we see it exposed in our own hearts jesus calls us to live a different way and in this calling he now tells us what that looks like and what that will entail to truly be his disciples means to follow his commands and what is it he has commanded us to do well, we're going to look at that now as we begin with the first point in your outline. He has commanded us, one, to pray for the Lord to raise up disciples. And notice what Luke tells us here in the first verse. He says, after this, and so we are, we are following what has just taken place, where uh, Jesus has been rejected by this Samaritan village, and now he has told his disciples the high cost of what it will mean to follow him. And after this, directly after this, he appoints now 72 others who he'll now send before he goes into these towns and villages and places to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, just as an aside, perhaps some of you, as I was reading that passage, look down at your own scripture text, and where I said 72, your passage said 70. Uh, That is debated among scholars. We have uh, various copies of early manuscripts, and some say 70, and some say 72, and we're not sure exactly which one it really is, but both numbers have great significance for the Jewish people. And many have sought to understand, well, why exactly did Jesus raise up these 72 or 70? Is there significance to this number? Because when you look at Israel's history, this number carries weight. For example, this was thought to be the number of nations. When you go through Genesis 10, and you read about the the nations of the world that are raised up, the offspring, depending on how you count that, you have either 70 or 72. And so the thought there would be that Jesus is is raising up disciples literally to go to the world, that the, the world is represented in this very number that Jesus calls out and commands to go. Others point to the number of elders who were appointed by Moses in Numbers 11, which again can be 70 or 72 depending on how you interpret who it is he was calling to go. Others believe this has to do with the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. They were called, these religious leaders, to go and to prepare the way for the Messiah. They failed in this calling, and so you could have symbolically here, Jesus, in essence, replacing that calling they had and placing that call in others who would now go and prepare the way and call people to the gospel of the kingdom. Whatever it is, and whatever the reason for this number, we see the very first instruction that Jesus gives them is an instruction to pray. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. I've read this passage many times, but honestly, it was just recently that I stopped and considered what this call must have resonated like among those, these 72. I mean, think about it. You have at this point, we know, hundreds of followers of Jesus, hundreds who have followed him uh, at this point for over a year, many of them. You have among these many that are following Jesus, the blind who can now see, the lame who can now walk, those who are possessed by demons who've been set free, and now they've dedicated their lives to following Jesus. They've listened to him teach, and now they're being empowered, 70, 72 of them, to go out into this gospel ministry Okay, he calls them out, he sets them before likely others, he looks them over, and then he says to them, okay, the first thing we need to do is pray that God would raise up laborers to go to the harvest. I mean, if you think about this, it's a bit like a coach putting together a roster for the varsity team and lining up that varsity team, and the first thing he says to him them is, we're going to need some new players. (laughs) I mean, it's not exactly a boost of confidence, is it? These who have stepped forward, these who have stepped out, these who are prepared to go, and Jesus says to them, "Uh, we're going to need some more disciples. But I don't think at all what Jesus is saying here is that we need better laborers. He's saying we need more laborers. He's giving before us and before them the, the weight of the task at hand. That while this number might have been representative of the number of nations, these 70, 72 were not sufficient to reach the nations. And so they would need to raise up disciples to reach the nations. It's a reminder to us of the significance of this ministry of multiplication that happens through discipleship. So rather than a, a ministry of addition where we just seek to go out there and preach the gospel to as many as we can and hope that as many respond as they can here he says not only do we preach and not only do we look for response, but we disciple, we, we teach what we've been taught so that faithful men, women, and children can go out and teach what they've been taught. Hey, and then our ministry is multiplied. So 32 years ago, when a campus missionary named Shane shared the gospel with me, He wasn't just adding to the kingdom. He was multiplying the kingdom. Because then I would go out and I would share the gospel with others. And there's people I've shared the gospel with and discipled who are now out there this morning proclaiming the gospel and discipling others, who are then proclaiming the gospel and discipling others. And through this ministry of multiplication, you can see quickly the pyramid effect. And how one can reach a few who can reach a few more who can reach many. And this is the ministry that God has called us to. And the very first step of these he says, is we need to pray. But before we go, before we do, we need to pray. And, and that's counter to our impulses, isn't it? I know firsthand in my own life, and for many of you, that when a, when a need is presented, so often our first response is, what can I do? How can I help out? How can I jump in there and serve? Now, that, that's a great response. But notice here, Jesus says, the first thing I want you to do It's both the easiest and the hardest thing to do. You need to pray. Now, now what's required for you to pray? You need to pray. (laughs) You you don't need a special training, a special class, a certification. You you don't need to go through years of study. You you read the Word of God. You respond to the Word of God. You you need to pray. You need to go to the Father in the name of the Son. You need to pray. It's not a hard thing to do. And at times, it's the hardest thing to do because it's the thing we don't do. Well, we've had 2,000 years since this command was given. And we still haven't reached the world with the gospel. And I understand God has a sovereign plan for these things, and I trust in his sovereign plan, but I also know we bear human responsibility and how much of our failure to reach the world comes back to our prayerlessness. Again, it's a good thing to go. It's a good thing to do. But remember what Jesus says here. The model we have before us, the first thing we need to do is to pray. And that's a call for us at Bloomfield Baptist Church today. We, myself included, we need to pray. We need to pray that God will raise up men, women, and children from our congregation who will go to the nations with the gospel, and who will go to our neighbors with the gospel. We need to pray for our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews and ourselves and our parents and our brothers and sisters that we would use every platform provided to share the gospel with others. We need to pray that God will raise up those who will go to the farthest ends of the earth, and we need to pray that God will use us as we are going now here where we are. In the interactions you have today, that we would share the gospel, that we would labor for the gospel. We need to pray that God raises up, and we need to pray that God empowers us. Because the call here is not just first to pray, it is second to go. And that's the second point there before you. It is to go and to make disciples. That this was the call that Jesus gives to the 72. This is what that number represents, I believe. It is to go out and to go to the nations and to go to the world. And notice, Jesus does not sugarcoat this call. (laughs) In fact, as you read through what he tells the 72 here, if you've got a background in marketing or advertising, you might be thinking, Jesus, you're not very good at this. This isn't much of a sales pitch, because what are we used to? We're, we're used to today, when people want us to do something, them sugarcoating it and making it sound better than it really will be. When they want to sell us something, that they try to make it sound just like the greatest thing in the world. We, we don't see a lot of truth in advertising. In fact, it's a bit shocking when we do. As I was reminded of, just earlier this year, there was a, a Facebook post that went viral for a Animal shelter in the Niagara area, and perhaps you will see how brutally honest they were as I share a bit of it with you. They had a dog named Ralphie that was up for adoption, and you've seen these ads for adoption. My particularly Caroline shows them to me all the time. I ignore them, but you know, oh look at your beautiful Ralphie, and he just needs a forever home. He's the most loving dog ever. Well, not in this case. Meet Ralphie. At first glance, he's an adorable, highly sought-after young dog. People should be banging down our doors for him, but we promise you that won't be the case. Ralphie is a terror in a somewhat small package. What could go wrong with a 26-pound dog, you ask? We're sure you're thinking my ankles will be just fine. We caution you, proceed at your own risk. They go on and they ad to talk about how many families had adopted Ralphie and brought Ralphie back. The most recent one said that he annoys our older dog. They said what they actually meant was, Ralphie is a fire-breathing demon who will eat our dog. They then list many of Ralphie's less-than-desirable traits, including this. He's a whole jerk, not even a half. Everything belongs to him, and if you dare test his ability to possess all things, wrath will ensue. The ideal home for Ralphie is the mother of dragons. Not real appealing to adopt Ralphie, is it? Now, you know, Ralphie got adopted. They probably brought him back, but he got adopted. I read the story. And some of you look at that and say, well, sure, he's not that bad. And yes, I'm sure this was exaggerated to an extent, but that's usually not how these ads read. It's and that's not usually how we talk, because when we, when we want someone to do something, we try to make it sound as appealing as possible. But notice just the, the brutal truth that Jesus gives to the disciples, as recorded here in Luke 10. It begins with verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> I mean, how's that for a call I mean, imagine we we gather in the parking lot to pray for a mission team here at Bloomfield and how do we usually pray for them? We pray, you know, God, would you protect them and, and strengthen them and, and use them as a gospel witness and bring them home safely. It might not resonate so well among our parents if I'm praying over their teens who are about to go to a, a teen camp in Poland and I pray, you know, Lord, we are sending them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And yet, if you're a follower of Christ and you go out into our world today, and I'm not talking about the furthest outreaches of it, I'm talking about our neighbors, our communities, our workplaces, our commonwealth, our nation. If you go out and you live according to the truth of God's word and you share the truth of the gospel, you, friend, are a lamb in the midst of wilderness. That this speaks, I believe, to the helplessness This speaks to the dangers that we face when we truly go to the world with the gospel against those who are enraged against it and we see that rage come out all and all the more as time goes on. And Jesus says honestly to them, you're going out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They're not going to like what you have to say. And haven't we just seen that in chapter 9? I mean, we get a glimpse of it where Jesus sends messengers before him to go into this Samaritan village, and Luke doesn't give us all the details. He just said that they don't want Jesus to come there. But he tells us how James and John respond. However it is, the Samaritans responded. And again, there's also embedded hatred with the Samaritans at this point. But However it was they responded specifically to these messengers, James and John want to incinerate them with fire from heaven. I mean, in the scripture, when do you see a town incinerated with fire from heaven? It's pretty extreme cases like Sodom. And so they see this type of refusal and hatred of the gospel of the kingdom, and they want to incinerate that town. That tells you something about the rejection that these disciples would face. It tells you something about the rejection that we might face. And yet, Jesus does not tell the disciples, because people are going to reject you, you better gear up and suit up and be ready for anything. He suggests, really commands here, that they need to go into a a helpless, dangerous situation as provisionally ill-equipped as possible. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. That's likely a reference to an extra pair of sandals in case theirs were to break or to wear out. You don't take any of these provisions with you. You trust in the Lord to provide. I think it says that. I think it also speaks to the urgency of the call because remember what we've just covered at the end of chapter nine. Jesus calls, come follow me, and everybody wants to go home and get ready and do things. He says, no, follow me now. There's an urgency to the mission. You don't need to go get prepared. You need to go now. Greet no one on the road. This doesn't mean they were to be rude It speaks to the context and the culture that that to greet someone on the road was not just to, as we so commonly do today. How are you doing? I really don't care. How are you doing? I really don't care because we don't even answer the question. You probably already done this this morning. How are you doing? How are you doing? We don't answer it. We just say it. It's like a greeting. Here, this this is a a sit down. We're going to spend some time together. We, We might even be invited to stay the night as we greet one another. So you don't have time to do that. There's an urgency here. You need to go as you've been called to go. Verses 5-8, through he he gives instructions about where they're to stay and and the peace and how they're to recognize that peace. And and as he goes through all of that, he comes now back to their mission in verse 9. Their assignment is to heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This was the message they were to proclaim. This is the message we are to proclaim. The kingdom has come. The, the king is here. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God has sent his son to redeem us and to save us. You think about our world today and so many who are lost and yet spiritual and seeking you talk to them about faith and they, they tell you more and more bizarre things that they are pursuing and seeking in order to find peace, in order to find whatever reference they have to a deity or to the Almighty or to God or to many gods. They, they are looking for something to suit their own taste. They're going out there looking for it and yet God in his grace has come to us. He's not called us to a Mecca. He's not called us to a journey. He's not called us to this, this lifelong pursuit that we might find the old man at the top of the hill at the end. No, He has come to us. How does He demonstrate His love towards us? Romans 5.8 While we were still not seekers, sinners, lost, abandoned of all hope, pursuing our own self-indulgence in our sin, He comes to us. I mean, Matthew's gospel that the book ends, he's Emmanuel, God with us. I'll never leave you. I'm with you always. And that is the message we proclaim. God has come. The king has come. Do you know the king? you've heard the name Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what it means that he saves? That that burden that you carry around. You put it on every morning and it's on you every night. It's the weight of sin. It's the weight of your own unrighteousness. It's your guilt. It's your shame. And you hope it'll stay in darkness where nobody will ever see it. And Jesus, in His grace, He he shines the light on our darkness. And He rescues us from it, He saves us from it. He breaks the power of canceled sin, He sets the sinner free. What he does for you, that's what he does for me. And this is the gospel that we proclaim. That that we all have sinned and we have all fallen short of this glory. But he demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we will receive the king, if we will confess him as Lord, if we will believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And what a glorious truth this is. But it's a truth that not everyone's going to respond to in faith and repentance. Some will reject it. And it's not because we do a a good job sharing the gospel with some and a poor job with others. I think back years ago to a, a particular afternoon when I was a campus minister at Western Kentucky University. I went into the student center. I had appointments with two students that day, both of whom I I sat down with and I shared the gospel with. And I would imagine if you recorded the conversations, they were very similar. I presented the same verses. I challenged the same things. I called for the same things. I, I clearly just presented as best I could the gospel of our Lord Jesus and called these two young men to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. The first one did. His name was Matt. He put his trust in Jesus. And within weeks, I was with him and a friend of his dorm room sharing the gospel with his friend who then would trust Christ. He became a disciple of Jesus that day. The second one, whose name escapes me. It was one of the coldest rejections of the gospel I've ever experienced. In fact, as we walked through the gospel, as he refused the gospel, I left him with the challenge of what God's Word tells us, that if you have the Son, you have the life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I asked this young man, do you have the Son? He said, no. I said, according to God's Word, what does that mean you don't have? He says, well, that means I'm going straight to hell, and I'm fine. And that ended our conversation. One responds in repentance and faith. The other rejects. Friends, we, we are powerless to save. If I had the power to save, both those young men would have been saved. Every person I've ever talked to about the gospel would be saved. I don't have the power to save, but Christ does. And in his grace and in his goodness, he, he reaches down among the most rebellious and he snatches some of us up and he saves. And the power's in him. And so we, we trust in Him. We, we pray that He would raise up disciples. We go in order to make disciples, but let us never forget, He is the one who ultimately makes these disciples. We're called just to be faithful and go, and as we go, to be mindful of the sober truth. And the final point there before you, that there will be some who reject Christ, and what are we to do with them? We're to warn them. As we see a warning here in Luke's gospel. Point three, warn those who reject Christ. And notice the warning we now see, verse 10. As they go out, Jesus says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Uh, again, we've covered this before, and you know, shake the dust off your feet. This goes back to a Jewish tradition, as they would enter into the promised land, they would shake the dust off their feet because they had been in ungodly places, wicked places, and they were shaking the dust off their feet in judgment of them and not to bring, symbolically, that filth into the promised land. Here Jesus reminds them of that judgment. You, you shake the dust off your feet. Again, you don't call down fire on them. You have compassion for them, mercy for them. In fact, what does he say? As you shake the dust off your feet, nevertheless know this, the kingdom of God has come near. You're proclaiming to them the kingdom as you are shaking the dust off your feet. And it doesn't mean you're never going to proclaim the kingdom to you again, because as this Samaritan village rejects Jesus in Acts one what does Jesus do? I'm going to empower you to go to Samaria. When we continue to share the gospel. And if they continue to reject, we knock the dust off our feet, but we continue to share. But as we share, we warn of the judgment that is to come. And we see that here. As we think about a picture of God's judgment in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we we think of Sodom. We we think of the judgment of God that came against Sodom for the wickedness of their sin. And notice how Sodom comes up in this passage. It will be more bearable for Sodom than for you who reject the gospel now. Why? Because you've seen things they didn't see. You've been preached things they were never proclaimed. And and if they receive the wrath of God then, imagine how strong you're going to receive it now for rejecting the kingdom and rejecting the king. The wrath of God is, is tangible and visible. It is a sober warning here, and we need not ignore it. And yet, truthfully, we, we so often either ignore it or we, we downplay it. And so when we speak of hell, we either speak of it in a curse or in a joking manner. Neither here. This is the reality of Hades and hell and judgment that is to come for those who reject the Gospel. It is a sober, sober one. For those who reject the kingdom? Is it a warning that we are to extend that they might understand the reality of the wrath that is to come and by God's grace that they might flee that wrath? I've mentioned many too, too many times before John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, and there, there's such a clear picture of this in the very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress because Christian has, has received the news that he dwells in the city of destruction, the city that will be consumed. And his only hope is to flee the city of destruction and make his way to the celestial city. And there's this picture there as he is fleeing his home, the city of destruction, that that he puts his fingers in his ears so he will not respond to the pleas of his wife and children those who are dearest to him, those who he loves the most, but he knows he can't listen to them and listen to the one who is calling him to flee destruction. And so with fingers and ears, he sets out to flee from the city of destruction. Bunyan gives us a picture of what it is to flee the judgment and the wrath of God and to respond to the gospel he offers Jesus gives us this picture here as he gives this warning, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And he denounces these cities that he had ministered in, these places who had seen his miracle-working power. These people had heard the gospel of the kingdom and yet they did not respond. They rejected. He compares them, Tyre and Sidon, which are mentioned as enemies of Israel and enemies of God in the Old Testament. And He says if they had witnessed what you have witnessed, they would have repented. And there would have been fruit of their repentance. They would have been sitting in that sackcloth and ashes. This is the, the fruit of repentance. We're reminded that often in scriptures, It's not enough to say, oh, I repented. Oh yeah, I trusted in Jesus. I walked out. I did these things. No, where is the fruit of that repentance? You think about conversations you've had and I've had with people in our own community. People who at one time were active members of this church. Have nothing to do with the Lord, nothing to do with this church, nothing to do with this word today. And yet, what do they so often say? Oh, I'm a member of Oh, I used to go there. Oh, I was baptized. I got my Bible around here somewhere in my baptism certificate. Where's the fruit of that repentance? The fruit reveals the root. And where there is no fruit, friend, there is no root. We need not encourage that type of easy believism. We need to warn those who have responded in that way that the wrath of God is coming, that the unrepentant might flee and that the repentant might take seriously the call to go to the lost with the gospel. Because this warning, this soberness, is not just for the unredeemed. It's for us today that we might tangibly see what is at stake for a lost and dying world. And that we need not comfort ourselves in thinking, well, they're a good person. Well, they're sincere in their religion. Well, you know, that that they probably believe that we might run to them with the gospel message. Urgently. Because people are drowning, friends. And if we honestly open our eyes and we look at the waters, they are struggling. Now, they may not think they're struggling. (laughs) They may think they're just fine. In fact, they may act rather rebelliously to our attempts to save them. Some of you saw headlines, as I did, this summer of the panhandle of Florida and a a large number of drowning deaths that took place over our summer months and continue now because of strong riptides and currents. One of those articles caught my attention. The headline read this, Florida sheriff blast beachgoers for ignoring and harassing lifeguards ahead of drownings. The article went on to say that the the strongest warnings possible had been displayed and issued up and down the coast in some of the, the worst conditions that these lifeguards had ever seen. And as these lifeguards stood on towers waving at people, walked the beaches, calling out to people, they were responded to with curses and insults by beachgoers who looked out in the water and basically said, I can swim. (laughs) I'm fine. And some who rather angrily just cursed out those who were there to warn them and to keep them from danger. And how only moments later, lifeguards would go into those waters and risk their own lives to rescue those who had insulted them and cast curses at them, and yet they still went in after them. And when they interviewed these lifeguards and asked, why do you do this? Essentially what they said was this, because that's my job. That's our job. And we can no longer sit on the dock and ignore the cross. And if we open our eyes and our ears and we look around, we see the cross. And we can't pretend that there's just a struggle there. We need to recognize there is a peril there. And the insults and the curses and those who reject, we cannot let that deter the mission. Because our job, friends, is to rescue the lost. The power comes from Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's not in our power that we do, it, but the job. The call, what Jesus clearly lays out for the 72 and what Jesus has clearly laid out for the millions who follow him today and those of us who follow him at Bloomfield Baptist Church. Open up our eyes. See the drowning. and Go after him with the gospel of Jesus. Because the kingdom has come. And the king is here. And Jesus saves. He saved me. He saved many of you. And he can save me. I pray that he will use us to that end. If you would pray that with me as we stand together.